unprecedented ways. And so we, your people, are so very grateful. Speak to our hearts and minds now, Lord Jesus, for we look to you, we listen for you to give us a word from on high. Bless the preparation, proclamation of this message that you will be glorified, your people blessed in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me once again to Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 4 and following. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their, mess, as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. As we make our way through the series of sermons preaching through the book of Acts, I want to preach this morning from the subject, the mission is possible. The mission is possible. Back in the 60s and the 70s, almost every week at a certain time in our house there on 2161 Barhamville Road, I found myself glued to the black and white television set that we had watching a weekly program, an episode of a show called Mission Impossible. Now, some of y'all remember that, but for the younger crowd, you don't know about that story, but you can Google it. It's called Mission Impossible, and it was a great little story. Every week, the story began with the team getting an assignment from headquarters that seemed to be impossible. In fact, it was so um, seemingly impossible that until the leader would say, um, this is your mission, should you decide to accept it? It was such highly sensitive information that the, the leader also said that in 60 seconds or 30 seconds, this tape will self-destruct. Well, as I think about this Antioch church, as I think about Barnabas and Saul, I think about a great mission. And in the eyes of many people, this mission was really impossible. They would face obstacles along the way, challenges along the way, ups along the way, and downs along the way. But these two men accepted the mission. And so they began their journey on the first missionary journey found in Acts chapter 13, verse 4. The text states, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You remember, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. It was a, a beautiful place. And notice the text reads, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Underscore these words. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It was not their feelings and emotions that sent them. It was not the opinion of people that thought they were great preachers and great leaders that sent them. It was not that uh, they were tired of working their day jobs. 
and looking for an easier source of income. It was not that they needed affirmation or attention or that they needed their egos boosted that sent them. In fact, it was not even the church that sent them. The church laid hands on them and affirmed them and, and, and pledged their support, but it was not really the church that sent them. It was the Holy Spirit that sent them. Verse 4 teaches us that while there are many motivations for doing what we do, the primary motivator for our movement should always be the Holy Spirit. As a church, the governing factor, the primary motivator, the prime mover for all we do as a church should always, must always be the Holy Spirit. Now, there are certain biblical guidelines, principles, and practices which every church should be engaged for example, every congregation should be engaged in the Great Commission. If you want to know what the church should be doing, the work we should be engaged in, just read it in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus in his own word says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Here it is. Go therefore and make disciples. Of all nations, go and tell everybody you can about Jesus. Y'all, are we on track in terms of what Jesus said we should be doing? He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He said, teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. That's the mission of the church. Are we in line with what Jesus said? Then he promised them, and lo, that's a promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So be it. It shall happen. And thus we have the church's marching orders. Straight from the heart and straight from the lips of Jesus. Evangelism, telling people about Jesus. Discipleship, training people to be more like Jesus. Missions, moving out from the four walls of the church, being the hands, the feet of Jesus locally and globally. That's what we ought to do. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside the church, and he tells us how to do what God has called us to do. So now moving under the authority, under the auspices of Jesus and the authority and guided by the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul depart Antioch and they arrived in Salamis where they preached the word in the synagogues of the Jews. Salamis was a thriving commercial center. It would be like Tampa or Orlando or Jacksonville in our culture. Because Salimus had a large number of local residents and a sizable transit community. People were coming and going all the time. People were constantly coming and going, buying and trading. And in the midst of this very busy place, 
stood a number of synagogues. Synagogues for Jews would be like churches for us. There were synagogues all over this place. We can find churches almost in every neighborhood. In fact, just uh, a month or so ago, we were away and, and preaching in Virginia. And as we drove out to this rural church, I mean, way out in the rural, it was amazing as to how many churches saturated that rural community. But so it was in Salimus, they had a number of Jewish synagogues, places of worship where the Jews would go to hear a word from God. Typically, typically, ordinarily, in order to speak in the synagogue, you would need an invitation. It's all like good hope. People don't just show up here at Good Hope and preach. You you need an invitation to preach here. If you're not a part of the pastoral staff, you need an invitation to come and preach here at the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. So it was, Dan Salimus, you need an invitation to preach to get an audience in the synagogue. Now watch this. Since God is all-knowing, he's omniscient, he knows everything, and since God is God of order and not a God of confusion, he sent Barnabas and Saul to the synagogues to preach. Don't miss that. Since God knows everything, he's a God of order, not a God of disruption. If people are disrupting worship, if people are disruptive in their behavior, that's not of God in the church. God is a God of order. And so since he's a God of order uh, and not of confusion, He sent Barnabas and Saul to the synagogue to preach. Five preachers, you remember, at the Antioch Church. Five gifted and talented preachers, but the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas and Saul to preach in the synagogues in Salimus. So why? Why were Paul and Barnabas? Selected out of the five. Well, for at least two reasons. First, Saul was selected because of his credentials. He was a highly trained Pharisee. He was a former student of Gamal. Gamal was the most respected rabbi of the day. Those two facts alone would be more than enough to prompt an invitation for Saul to speak in the synagogue. Who better to speak in the synagogue than than this one time, this, this Pharisee who had been trained by the most notable rabbi of the day. All you needed to do was put Rabbi Gamal's name on your resume and you got the job. 
So God, knowing that all of these Jews would want to hear Saul because he was a respected Pharisee and because Gamaliel had been his mentor, his model, his teacher, he sent Paul. Well, why did he send Barnabas? It's simple. Barnabas was a homeboy whose family still had money and influence in Salamis. So he sent Barnabas because he knew as soon as Barnabas showed up, the people would say, oh, that's Barnabas. Barnabas is a homeboy. We want to hear from Barnabas. Besides that, Barnabas' family has money, and Barnabas' family has influence and affluence. Barnabas was in like Flint. So here's a footnote, y'all. God knows. Don't miss this. God knows every system. And he knows exactly how it works. Systems frustrate people. Systems aggravate people. Systems disappoint people, but God knows every system. He knows the political system. He knows the military system. He knows the system of corporate America. He knows the system of private industry. God knows every single system. He knows how to get those in whom he wants in. And he knows, y'all help me, how to get those out who he wants out. And when God wants you in, y'all hear me today? When God wants you in, when God wants you, when God wants your name tag on the door, when God wants your family pictures on the desk, when God wants your influence at the table, God knows how to get you in. When God, when God, when God, y'all, when God wants to give you a platform, when, when God wants to give you a seat at the table, he will do it and can't nobody stop him. And listen, and listen, listen, listen. And when he opens the door and lets you in, when he gives you, when God gives you a seat at the table, when your name is above the door, when your pictures are on the table, when you have the title of supervisor, CEO, president, whatever it is, remember, recognize, and recite that God did it. That God did it. And always remember that the reason he did it was so you could bring glory and honor to his name and bless his people. He didn't do it so we could become puffed up. He didn't do it so we can boast and brag about how good we are. 
He didn't do it so that we could try to get the glory and get the attention ourselves. When God did it, he did it so we would bring his name, glory, and honor so that we will lift him up so that we can tell everybody how big, how good, how wonderful, how marvelous, how magnificent our God is. That's why he did it. I love the stories, y'all, of Joseph. Y- y'all remember Joseph? His brother sold him into to slavery, and then and then Potiphar's wife lied on him, and then he went to prison for a crime he didn't commit. But then God raised him up, gave him fair favor with the Pharaoh. He became the number two man, second only to Pharaoh. But when Joseph got there, he always remembered that it was God that did it. He used his position, his power, his prominence to bless his people. A whole nation was preserved because Joseph did what God told him to do. I love the story, y'all, of David. It's amazing that David was just a young shepherd boy. He wasn't trying to get no position. He wasn't bucking and trying to go up the ladder. He was just out there minding his father's Jesse's sheep, and the Lord sent for him. Took a young shepherd boy, made him the king of Israel so that God would get the glory and that his people would be blessed. David was willing to say, God did it. I was just a young shepherd boy. Didn't have much going on, but God did it. Oh, I love this story of Esther, y'all. Hadessa was her Jewish name. She was just a common, everyday maid, a fair Jewish girl, but God selected her, put her in the harem of the king, and out of all of the beautiful women, with all of the beauty treatments, the king found favor with Esther. It was God, y'all. She brought glory on to her name, his name. She said, before we make this move, we go fast. I'm going fast. My maidens are going fast. Because of Esther's due diligence. Because Esther gave glory to God. Because Esther was not full of herself. Because Esther understood that it wasn't because of her beauty that God got her in the house. Because Esther realized that it was the hand of God that made her the queen. Nation of people were preserved. You see, neither one of them, Joseph, David, or Esther, were self-promoting. Neither one of them were jocking and scheming and trying to get in. It was was God that opened the door uh, in spite of the hatred and in spite of the opposition and let them in. And when they got in, they glorified God and they blessed his people. How about you? When you get in, what do you do? Do you bring glory to his name by coming to worship? Do you bring glory to to his name by making the right decisions? Do you bring glory to his name by dealing honestly and fairly, by walking in integrity? Do you bring glory to his name by being committed to him in all that you do and say? Do you bless his people? 
Do you use his, your influence and his, your affluence to help somebody else as they travel alone? If you're driving a bus, do you have a good word for somebody in the morning? If you're sweeping the floor, can you do it to the best of your ability that God will be glorified? If you're taking care of patients, do you love them? If you're working in the school system with children, do they see the love of God in your smile? Do they understand that you know Jesus by the way you deal with them? But so it was. God got Barnabas and Saul in the courts of the synagogue where they preached Jesus. And they preached to the people that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. They preached that Jesus lived a sinless life. They preached that Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross to save anyone who trusted in him, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But early Sunday morning, just like he said, they preached that Jesus got up out of that grave with all power in his hand. They preached that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They preached that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They preached that there is no other name under heaven and on earth by which men and women, children must be saved. Now watch this. With all that preaching going on, News began to travel that there is a word from the Lord. News began to travel that, that there was a word that was changing hearts, y'all. There was a word that was regulating minds. There was a word that was bringing hope to the hopeless. There was a word that was a shining light dispelling darkness. There was a word that was setting the captives free. There was a word that was tearing down barriers and building bridges. There was a word like no other word. So the proconsul, the governor, serious part. Paulus sent for Barnabas and said, I just got to hear that word. Ain't God all right? We ought to have a word, y'all. People ought to hear the word. They ought to be saying, I got to go over there and hear that word. That word is doing something. That word is not an ordinary word. That word is not a mundane word. That word is a word that's changing hearts and minds and lives. Y'all, there was a problem in the midst of all of that good preaching, in the midst of all of that great celebration, there was a problem. You see, there was an obstacle, a blockage, a barrier in the way. The blockage, the barrier, the obstruction, the obstacle in the way, according to verse 6, was a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus was his Hebrew name, which meant son of Joshua, a son of the Savior. Apparently, y'all, his parents named him with the hope of him following in the footsteps of Joshua. But instead of living up to his name, he became a fraud, an imposter, a false prophet, a deceiver. Notice in verse 8, he is called by his Aramaic name, Elimus, which is translated sorcerer or musician. Elimus uh -huh. was the governor's spiritual advisor. 
The Bible tells us he was a shrewd slickster, a fast, convincing talker who had duped the governor into trusting him for counseling in matters of religion, science, and philosophy. But now that the governor had gotten wind of the gospel, the good news, the truth of God's word, he was curious to hear it with his own ears. Needless to say, Elimus is threatened because when the governor hears and believes and trusts in Jesus, Elimus at best loses his influence, his affluence, and his position. So he's beyond angry. He's belligerent. And he's hell-bent on blocking Sergius Paulus at all costs. So he withstood them, meaning Paul and Barnabas. He stepped to Paul and Barnabas in verse 8, and then he tried to bully them into submission. But to his shock and his dismay, he found out that he was not standing against men He was not bullying flesh and blood. He was not opposing humans. Rather, this fool was arrogantly, blankly, belligerently opposing God himself. Notice in verses 9 and 10, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said the word. said the word and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit Paul Paul calls Elimus out and he identifies him as to who he really is and what he's up to now up to this point Elimus has been fronting he has been faking he had been running a game he had been he had been he had the governor Sergius Paul is fooled. He had the governor hoodwinked. He had misled the governor into thinking that he was something that he really was not. But now the text tells us enough is enough. God was about to do what God does. That is, God was about to pull the cover off this sly, slick, and wicked imposter so that everybody could see His true colors. Notice the uncovering as verse 10. In verse 10, Paul identifies the true nature of Elamus. Paul says, oh, full of deceit and all fraud. That means he was a swindler, a sham, a con artist. Paul goes on. He says, you son of the devil. It's right there in the text, y'all. That means he was possessed and obsessed and suppressed by the devil, and had become the right-hand man all up in the governor's mansion. Paul goes on. He's not done yet. He says, you enemy of righteousness. That means Elimus vehemently and sometimes viciously opposed all that was right, honest, just, fair, pure, clean, and holy. If it was clean and holy and honest and right, Elimus was against it. Then Paul concludes verse 10 by posing this question to Elimus. Will you not cease 
perverting? Paul said, will you not stop it? In other words, how long is this going to take? Will you not stop? Will you not lay it aside? Will you not give it up? He said, will you not cease perverting, distorting, twisting the truth to suit your own fancy? The answer from Elamus was an resounding, resounding no. Paul said, man, you need to stop it. Will you not stop it? Will you not give it up? Will you not, will you not just lay it aside? His answer, he meant, Elamus' answer was a resounding no. Now watch carefully. Between verses 10 and 11, Elamus had an opportunity to come clean. Between verses 10 and 11, he had a grace period designed for him to get right with God. Don't y'all love that, that period in there? Between verses 10 and 11, I got saved somewhere between verse 10 and 11. Like the prodigal son, I came to my senses. Somewhere between verse 10 and 11, somewhere between verse 10 and 11, some of us stopped playing the game. Somewhere between verse 10 and 11, some of us decided to get right with God. Somewhere between verse 10 and 11, we realized that we were wrong and God was right. All right, let me put it this way. Somewhere between verses 10 and 11, somebody living with somebody they were not married to decided that this is not right. I'm in a period of grace. Somebody said between verse 10 and 11, I'm stealing from my job. I'm cheating on my income tax. This is not right. Somebody said between verses 10 and 11, I'm in an adulterous relationship. He's not mine. She's not mine. It's wrong. I'm out of here. Between verse 10 and 11, it's a grace period, y'all. Right there is where we get right with God. That right there is when we hear the word. Right there is where we come clean with God. Right there is when we stop playing games, when we stop pretending. Right there between verses 10 and 11, that's where Elimus was. God says, I'm giving you a chance. Between verses 10 and 11, sad to say, Elimus shows no repentance, no remorse. No respect and no regard for the Holy Spirit and definitely no regard for the men of God, Paul and Barnabas, whom God had sent to him to tell him the truth, to save him from his sins. So there he was, out of gas. It's curtain time. Game over. Elimus. You lose. So Paul said to him, to Elis, the instigator, the agitator, the aggravator, the bully, the boastful, 
the brash, the hateful, the hideous, the harsh. Paul says to Elam, it's the sly, the slick. Working behind the scenes, under the cover, trying to fly below the radar. Elamus says to him, God, uh, Paul says to Elamus, the bully, the boastful, the brash, these words of divine judgment in verse 11. And indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon him. I don't want that, y'all. That, that's why I got right between verse 10 and 11. Paul said the hand of divine judgment. The hand of the Lord is upon And I like what Paul said, Deacon Will. He didn't say, my hand. <laughs> he didn't say the pastor's hand is on him. He didn't say the social pastor's hand is on him. He didn't say the deacon's hand is on him. He said the hand of the Lord. Not human hands, but the holy hand. He said, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately, that means his grace is gone. Uh, immediately, that means that God had put up with his foolishness long enough. Immediately, that means that he has played the game long enough. He has been a disruptor, a troublemaker, long enough. That means that he had blocked, tried to block God's progress, God's mission, long enough. It's curtain time, lights out, game over. Immediately, a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He wasn't as influenced as he thought he was. Nobody was rushing to him to help him. Nobody was trying to guide him. Nobody showed him any attention. Everybody was looking towards God now. Now that the opposition is out of the way, the mission continues. That's a footnote there, y'all. God always knows how to move opposition out of the way. You see, the mission is possible not because of what we can do. The mission is possible because of what God can do. The mission of Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church is not based upon how good the pastoral staff is or how good the deacons are or how great the members are. The mission is based upon how awesome, how mighty, how powerful our God is. Our God is a mighty God. The mission is not predicated upon people. It's predicated upon God. Verse 12 concludes with the good news. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done. Being astonished at the teachings of the Lord, he heard that word. He heard God's word. He saw God's power. He trusted Jesus as Lord and say, That's the mission, y'all. And I know sometimes it's hard, and I know sometimes it's tough, and I know sometimes you're persecuted, and I know sometimes you go through hard times, but keep your hand in God's hand. 